You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Well, I'm glad for the opportunity and privilege to look at God's Word again with you this week. Turn to Matthew chapter 12, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. This is the third week in a sermon series in Matthew chapters 11 through 13, a series in which we're looking at Jesus, His life, His ministry, His teaching. The title of the series is, Are You the One? Taken from John the Baptist's question back at the beginning of 11, asking Jesus, Are you the one? Are you the one we've been looking for this morning? title is the one who is better than rules the one who's better than rules uh, the year after I graduated high school I went away for one year to a one-year Bible Institute in upstate New York it was a school um, uh, it was probably about 500 students everyone's taking the same classes it's all Bible and related classes it was a school with lots of rules very regimented, very rigorous. And a bell goes off at 6.30 in the morning, you wake up. From 6.30 to 7, you sit at your desk, you have quiet time, read the word, pray, this sort of thing. 7 o'clock, the bell rings again, you get around. 7.45 or so, it's breakfast, you head down to breakfast. Breakfast is done, 8.30, you go to class. Very regimented, very rigorous, lots of rules. If you put a bunch of college students in a high-rule environment, do you know what they do? They break them. They break them. It would not be appropriate in this context to tell you all the ways in which we broke the rules that year at school. I'll give you an example, though. There was no, no music allowed. Like, you couldn't have... We sang songs in chapel and such, but you couldn't have... Of course, this was before the days of smartphones and iPods and digital music. The only way to have music was to have a tape player... Um, and if you're under 25, you probably don't even know what that is, but it's a tape player uh, or a CD player. That's the only way. You'd have to have a stereo to listen to music. But we had one of the guys in our dorm um, who had brought an uh, answering machine for our phone, and the answering machine had a little micro cassette in it, and you, the message was recorded on that micro cassette, and, and then the, the messages that people left would be recorded on as well. Well, he had a second microcassette that somehow, probably by holding it up to a radio, he had recorded music onto. So in certain circumstances, if the RA was gone and the right people weren't there, we could listen to music on our answering machine. <laughs> that was a high-quality audio experience. Lots of broken rules. But some people like rules. Some people like rules. Every dorm had an RA whose job it was to enforce all the rules. Um, if you broke rules, you got demerits. If you got enough demerits, you got an extra work assignment. 
NERA on school, on campus, could write you up. I got lots of demerits. My first RA was ex-military. So you can guess maybe where that story goes. I remember our, our dorm was more like a cabin. In fact, it was. It was a camp cabin. They used it for that in the summers. And uh, so it was just four, maybe four rooms, open doorways. There wasn't even really any doors you could shut. And so there's four people in our room. And I remember sitting at our desk during study hours. We had mandatory study hours at night. I remember sitting at the desk reading and, and all of a sudden just getting this feeling. And I turn around to look and there's Brian just standing in the doorway watching us study. The high rule and high rule environment and he was he was on top of it he might have been the least liked guy on campus well partway through the year we got transferred out of that dorm away from that ra to new dorms they needed our cabin for snow camp and so we went to a new dorm and my friend marty and i got sent to the same dorm so our first night there the bell rings at 6 30 it's time for study hours you sit at your desk quietly and study we knew the regiment we've been doing it for half a year so the bell rings and we go right over and we sit down at our desk and and the other four guys in our room, they didn't do anything. Jamie kept playing his guitar. Jack and Steve kept talking. Will kept napping on his bunk. And we just got our books out. These guys were in big trouble. And we just started to read. And finally, about 10 minutes later, the RA in this new dorm comes ambling through and says, what's up, guys? Everybody here? Yeah. Walks on out the other door and we never see him again. Nobody does anything different. And Marty and I just said, what in the world is going on here? You can do anything you want in this dorm. Some people like rules. Some don't. You know, if you're 18 years old and have just left out of your parents' house, your attitude toward rules is pretty straightforward. I don't want them. Don't need them. Now, if you're running a college or an organization, any organization with people, for that matter, it's, it's a little more complicated. Well, Jesus lived and ministered in a high-rule environment. The Judaism of his day placed a strong emphasis on the Old Testament Torah, those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, uh, or as we'll see it called here in our passage this morning, the law high emphasis on the law. Devout Jews knew that there were 639 commandments in the Torah that needed to be followed. Rules that covered virtually every aspect of life. But, but for the Jews, three aspects were especially important. First of all, all the rules around circumcision. That was a mark that you were part of God's people. Secondly, the dietary laws, what you could and couldn't eat and when you could and couldn't eat it that was a very important rule that set God's people apart they paid close attention to that the third category that was especially important was all the rules around the Sabbath the Sabbath that command you know the fourth command in the Ten Commandments that set aside the seventh day of the week from work to focus on God and to rest in his provision and care and it's it's that third aspect of Sabbath that we see Jesus run up against here in our passage this morning. You know, we, we need to consider this carefully, too. Probably nobody here this morning is struggling with how do I observe and think about 
Sabbath. You probably didn't wake up this morning thinking about, oh, today's the, you know, we got to be careful. No, it, we're probably not thinking too much about that. But all of us, in, in ways we might not even have considered, need to wrestle with how following the rules relates with following Jesus. We need to wrestle with how following the rules relates to following Jesus. So, so let's look at this text here together this morning. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. This is God's word. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us now as we look at your word, consider what it says and, and what it means for us. Lord, we need and want to see you and your son Jesus rightly. So we need our eyes opened. And Father, we also need our hearts softened to understand and receive the truth that we see here. Father, this will push up against, for some of us in really strong ways, push up against ways we are accustomed to thinking about you and relating to you, and for that matter, relating to others as well. And we will need your Spirit to open our eyes, and soften our hearts, and guide us into the truth, and change us to become more like your Son. So please, please use your word now 
in your people for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is here in this passage a stark contrast. It often seems that way with Jesus. A stark contrast. Look at verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, the hostility he's receiving, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all. So, so many people followed Jesus out of town, away from the crowds, but, but a crowd goes with him. They go out into more remote areas to be healed by him, to receive, as it were, life from him. Many people go and do that. What a blessing Jesus is. There is so much suffering in the world, so much sickness, so much injustice, so much pain. And for so long, there had simply been nothing to be done about it but deal with it. And then Jesus comes along. Then Jesus comes along, healing everybody who comes to him. And so the people flock to him. They're thankful for him. They want him. They need him. They'll go wherever he is to receive his gracious care. But not everybody feels that way. There's another group of people in verse 14. It says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Destroy him. This guy's got to go. We got to get rid of him. It's remarkable, really. Crowds gather around Jesus. They see these men. That guy's been lame for years. Look, he's walking. I know that guy. He's blind. He can see. That, guy's, that guy was possessed by a demon. Look at him. He's in his right mind. People see these miracles. They see people, real people. Sometimes people that they know and recognize healed. Lives changed. And the Pharisees say, this has to stop. This has to stop. Part of it, of course, is simple jealousy. As Jesus increases, they feel themselves to decrease. Part of it is just jealousy. But it's more than that. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, Jesus is breaking the rules. Jesus is breaking the rules. And they are all about the rules. So what do following the rules and following Jesus have to do with each other? Look back at verses 1 and 2. The disciples are walking with Jesus through the grain fields. They're picking the heads of grain, kind of splitting them open, taking the grain out of and eating them. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, look what your disciples are doing. That is not lawful on the Sabbath. That's against the rules. Well, where does that come from? Keep a marker here. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, of course, is a well-known passage. It's the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. The fourth commandment says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates, because, verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. God worked six days creating the world, rested on the seventh. And as God calls out Israel to be his people, he says, hey, you too. You work six days, but the seventh day, just like God, you rest. You rest on the seventh day. The Sabbath is rooted in that seventh day of creation. For the Jews, the day was marked from the end of what we would say was the evening before. So, so Sabbath for the Jews is Friday night to Saturday night. When I was in seminary, I worked at the, a Jewish temple in Louisville, Kentucky, and on Friday night, they had a Shabbat service. And in the evening, after dark, the Shabbat service would begin, and they would have a service, and then again, Saturday morning, they would have another Shabbat service, the Saturday morning service. And if they had a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, that would be Saturday morning during that service, and they'd have their big party afterwards. Friday night to Saturday night, that was Sabbath or Shabbat. That was the Sabbath day that was to be observed. It's rooted in the seventh day of creation. Here's what he says here. God rested in the seventh day. and then so, so the Lord, it says at the end of verse 11, blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Now, the word blessing is the language of gift. The word blessing is the language of gift. That idea of making it holy is the language of claim. In other words, God is saying, this day is for me, he says. I claim it. And it's for you. It's a day for you to rest from your work and focus on me. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, uh, we, uh, our parents did not let us do much on Sunday. And I get the Sunday is not the Sabbath, it's the first day, but we won't go into that. But Sunday was a day of rest. Maybe it was that way for you growing up. There was just things we couldn't do. We had to take it easy. And as a kid, I didn't appreciate that. I don't want to take it easy. Sunday's a day I'm not in school. I want to go out and play on Sunday. I want to do all sorts of things. But we take it, take it easy on the Lord's Day. Maybe we hear about the Sabbath and we think that too. I've got to rest and focus on the Lord. No, no, no. It's, the Sabbath is meant to be gift. These people are working, many of them working, working, subsistence work. And it's like, you know, on the seventh day, we rest. We trust that God will take care of us. We spend time worshiping him. Generally, it was understood we're going to eat our best meal on the Sabbath day. We're going to enjoy and be grateful for his bounty. Sabbath, God claims it. It's made holy. But it's also gift. It's a blessing. You think people would want that, of course. But God's people, people often ignored the Sabbath. The prophets are full of God's rebuke of his people for not observing his Sabbath. So, so by Jesus' day, a whole bunch of extra rules had risen up around the Sabbath. There were commands in the Old Testament, in the law, about what you should do on the Sabbath. But there was all sorts of situations that weren't clear. I mean, what exactly constitutes work? So a whole bunch of rules rose up. The rabbis produced a document, the 39 prohibitions 
came around somewhere around this time. It clarified 39 tasks that were unacceptable. These are work. And it just, listen to all these. This is work, this is work, this is work. So these, that's the rules that they had added to the law. Number three on that list was reaping, harvesting food from your field. Apparently that was what the disciples were doing. Breaking rule number three, prohibition number three from the law. This list of rules the rabbis had put together. The only acceptable excuse for working on the Sabbath was to save a life. If you could save a life, then you might do the work. For the Pharisees, breaking one of these rules was basically the same as breaking God's law. That's the way they talk about it here. It's breaking God's law. Why do the disciples eat? Why do they eat here back in Matthew 16? Because they hated God and his law? Because they didn't care about the Sabbath? No, the text tells us why. They ate because they were hungry. They're hungry. It's not good enough for the Pharisees. It's good enough for Jesus. They're hungry. So he gives two examples to support his disciples and himself here. Get Matt back in Matthew 12, look at verse 3. He says, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, and this is back in uh, Samuel, David is fleeing from Saul. He's just realized there's going to be no fix here. Saul's out to get me. He's going to kill me. And David comes to the tabernacle, and he talks to Ahimelech the priest and says, I am starving. My men are starving. Do you have anything for us? And the priest says, the only thing I got is the bread, uh, the bread of the presence, the bread that we bake and set out before the Lord on the Sabbath day. But the priest says, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Now, that's not who was supposed to get it. Supposed to go just to the priest. It would sit out for a certain period of time and then the priest would eat it. But the priest says, David, I'll give it to you. And, and no one thought David messed up there. David, he's entitled to it. It's David. Jesus says, don't you see, don't you remember how David did this? And they gave him the food, verse 4, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Second example, verse 5. He says, or haven't you read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Because on the Sabbath day, the priests had to make the loaves of bread that were going to be set out before the Lord in the temple on the Sabbath day, and they had to offer two sacrifices on the Sabbath day, both prescribed by the law. Jesus says even the priests in the temple, they're working on the Sabbath day, but they're not guilty, Jesus says. You could imagine the Pharisees hearing Jesus give these examples say, well, well, that was David. David could do that, sure. And those are priests. Priests of God could do that. Jesus says in verse 6, well, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What he means is someone greater than the temple is here. Well, yeah, David could do that, and Jesus says, then something even more startling in verse 8. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, Jesus isn't merely saying here, well, you don't understand the law as well as I do. I understand it better than you. You're mistaken about what the law is saying. That's true, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm in charge of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord, the master of the Sabbath. The Pharisees would undoubtedly say, no, the Sabbath is God's day. Jesus says, 
I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus changes everything about their approach to the Sabbath. Jesus changes their approach to the rules. It's not that Jesus comes to get rid of God's law. He doesn't come saying, no more rules, do whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. In fact, turn back just a few chapters. Matthew chapter 5. Early in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish, to do away with the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of hell, heaven. Jesus isn't coming along saying, you don't have to do any, follow any laws anymore. You don't have to obey any of the rules. Jesus doesn't come to say that. He says, I came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. The law was pointing to something else, something greater, something better. Look, we don't relate to God through rules. We relate to God through a person. We don't relate to God through law. We relate to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Look, that doesn't make things easier if that's what you're worried about. Some of us hear that and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There are laws in the Bible. There are commands. There are rules. It doesn't make it easier. Look down to verse 21 here in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry, angry, angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. Jesus says, I, I'm not making it easier. You heard don't murder. I said, don't even be angry with your brother or call him a fool. No, verse 27, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. That's what the Old Testament law says. Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus isn't lowering the standard of holiness. He's not saying, oh, you don't have to obey the commands of the law. Jesus doesn't come saying, do whatever you want. He'll say in John 14, if you love me, he says, you'll keep my commandments. He's not lowering the standard. But we don't relate to God through rules. We relate to God through his son. That's the fundamental way we relate to God through Jesus himself. That was the Pharisees' mistake. Back in Matthew 12, verse 7, Jesus points out the problem. He says, if you had known what this means, and then he quotes Hosea 6, an Old Testament prophet. He says, if you know what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. Jesus, you're condemning innocent people because you don't understand what that phrase means. Now, they're not going to appreciate that. They think they're the arbiters of what the Old Testament says. Jesus says, no, you don't understand what it means. That's your problem. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I'm concerned on the motivation and intentions of your heart, not your outward performance and actions. I'm more concerned about what's going on in your heart. Look, the Pharisees' mistake is, is often our mistake too. We think we relate to God through keeping rules. If we follow the rules, if we always do the right thing, we're good. 
And it seems to work for us as long as we think we're doing well with the rules. It fuels our pride. Look how good I am. Look how well I'm doing. I feel good. I feel good about my relationship with God. I'm better than most. It fuels our self-confidence, our, our sense of spiritual security. We, we, we begin to look down on others who aren't following the rules as well as we are. And, and how could we not? I mean, how could we not, right? Nothing makes me feel better about how well I'm doing than to see how poorly you're doing. Look at these, look at these people struggle. Look at me up here, right? You do worse, I feel better. It fuels my pride. It fuels self-confidence. Look how well I'm doing until I start to struggle, which I will. And then despair, then shattered confidence. I might just try harder, trying to win a game I can't win, relating to God through how excellently I perform the rules, or what a lot of people do is just give up. Can't meet that standard, can't keep all of those rules. I mean, Jesus says as much back in Matthew 5, at the end of that passage I read, he says, look, unless, you're, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be better than the best people you know if you're going to play that game, if you're going to relate to me by rules and performance. You can't win that game. We must obey his word. We want to obey his word if we love him. But that's not the basis of our relationship. The basis of our relationship is always gift, always grace. Jesus says, I desire mercy. Mercy. We receive mercy from God, which leads us to extend mercy to others. I'm not competing with you in our rule game. I'm happy for you to receive mercy just like I've received mercy. Remember how Jesus sums up the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, you're going to do what he says. And love your neighbor as yourself. So, so look at, back in Matthew 12, look at verse 9. Right? He goes on from there, he enters the synagogue, a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees, they're trying to trap him. They want to accuse him. They say, hey, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? In the back of their minds, they're saying, no, it's not. Jesus says, well, look. He says, if you have a sheep and it falls in a pit, any, any one of you, if you had a sheep that falls in a pit on the Sabbath, would you not take it out? And the answer is, well, yes, we would, of course. I'm not going to see a sheep die just because it's the Sabbath. Jesus says, verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? He says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This man's hand's all withered up. I'm, I'm going to heal it. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and he heals it. We do good because God has done good to us. We do good because he has done good to us. He's been extraordinarily merciful 
and gracious to us. He's just, he's just that kind of God. That's just the one he is. Look at how Matthew describes him here. Down in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, aware of the Pharisees' hostility, withdrew from there. Many followed him. He healed them all. He ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So this is Isaiah writing, Isaiah 42, writing 700 years before Jesus in words that anticipate Jesus himself. Look at verse 18. He says, Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. It's all stuff we hear at Jesus' baptism back in chapter 4. I'll put my spirit upon him. We saw that at the baptism as well. He'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to the nations, not just the Jews, but all people. Listen to how he describes it now in verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The one that God sends to save his people, he's not out there pounding a bully pulpit, screaming for attention, social media blitz, look at me, listen to me. He is the exact opposite of, for example, virtually all of our politicians. He's not raising his voice. He's not demanding an audience. He's not demanding attention. He's quiet and humble. Verse 20 he says, a bruised reed he will not break. You know what a reed is, right? They grow in marshy, swampy areas by the millions. They, they're essentially worthless. But you could take them, a good solid one. You could take it and they would fashion it and use it for some things. You could use it to make a, uh, something they used for measurement, kind of like a ruler. Sometimes they would form them, if they were shaped right, they'd form them into a, like a little flute. Uh, they'd also use them um, to create a pen. So they'd have some uses, but the reeds are everywhere. They're, they're essentially worthless, but a good one might be useful for something. He says here, a bruised reed, you know, the kind that's broken down, blown over by the wind, soaked up with water. A bruised reed, he will not, break. He can't do anything with the bruised reed. Jesus doesn't look at it that way. He's talking, of course, about people. People that come bruised and broken, lives a mess, not what they want them to be, past that maybe doesn't look so great, people that most of us would think could probably be discarded. They haven't much to offer. It's the one that God sent says, bruised reed, I can do something with that. I can do something with that. A smoldering wick, he will not quench. A little wick that goes down into the oil lamp, and they would light the wick, and it would flame up and give light, fueled by the oil. But sometimes the wick was no good. You'd light it, and it would smolder, and it would give off smoke, which is not what you want it to do, lit in your house. You want it to give off light. And so if you've got a wick that just smolders and smokes, you tear it out, you pitch it, you put a new wick in. Not the one God has sent. A smoldering wick, he doesn't quench it. 
He tends it, he feeds and fuels it until it produces a flame. I says, I can use that. It hasn't done anything. It's smoking. It's more of a nuisance than, no. He says, I can do something with that. We are all in some way, shape, or form like bruised reeds and smoking wicks. The past isn't what we want it to be. Not everything we'd hoped for. We wish we'd accomplished more. We wish there were fewer mistakes, fewer errors, fewer bad choices. Jesus says, I can do something with that. I can do something with you. He's, he's gentle like that. He's gracious and merciful like that. He doesn't look at us and say, you have broken a lot of rules. Listen, you, you have broken a lot of rules. So have I. That's not how he relates to us, by rules, but by grace. Jesus says, those rules that you were supposed to keep, I kept them for you. 33 years of sinless, flawless living. Jesus says, I'm going to go ahead and give you my record. You know the punishment that you ought to get for all the law-breaking and rule-breaking you've done? Jesus says, I'm going to go ahead and take that too. And he goes to the cross. And he takes the punishment that my law-breaking and your law-breaking deserves on himself. He's, he's just that kind of Savior. He's just that kind of God. He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't quench smoldering wicks. He takes rule breakers and law breakers like me and you and says, I'm going to keep those laws for you. That's grace. The punishment you ought to get, I'll take that on myself. You just, this is what we saw last week when Jesus says, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy. You could try to relate to God by rules. You could try to say, I'm just going to be so good, God can't ignore me. You could try that. That's a brutal way to live. You won't succeed. That's a heavy yoke that you cannot bear. Or, or in humility, you can turn and say, God, I'm just, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to come and follow Jesus. I'm going to give my, my brokenness, my smoldering lack of light and perform. I'm just going to bring that to you. And I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to let you do something with me because you're a good and merciful and gracious God. Jesus is the one who is better than rules. He's better than rules. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't we go to him today? Maybe for the first time. Maybe you've never gone to him. Maybe you've never really turned and trusted in him. You thought, I'm just going to try to do my best and perform and see what I can do. Um, and today, you need to turn to him for the very first time. Put your trust and faith in him. But even if you've already done that, most of us have a strong tendency to continue to relate to him through the performance and rule-keeping. Some, some of us were just kind of raised that way. And even if you weren't raised that way, we tend to slip into it anyway. I've got to perform. I've got to keep the rules or God will be unhappy with me. God will break my reed and quench my wick, and he's done with me. You felt like that. I know you have. I have. It's not the kind of Savior he is. It's just not what he is. He won't break a bruised reed. He'll tend it and fix it and mold it and use it. He'll take and use you. But you've got to come to him. You've got to come to him as a bruised reed, as a needy person looking for grace. Here's one of the ways you'll know you've done that. 
one of the signs? You come to people in your life and treat them with grace. The Pharisees look to destroy. They look, they condemn the innocent. They're looking for guilt. It's not the way God's people work. We look to extend mercy like God has extended mercy to us. Father, I pray. Dear Springview Community Church, Lord, we, we need your help. We are inclined to try to relate to you through your rules. As though we could be good enough or do good enough or, or somehow earn the right to be received and accepted by you. Lord, I pray that you would you would relieve us of that false notion. Rather, we would come to you acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging our failures, acknowledging our shortcomings, bringing them to you to receive your mercy and grace. It's humble people, needy people that come to you. So, Father, make us humble, make us needy, make us, Father, even desperate for your grace and mercy and care so that we we would no longer, no longer live for rules, but rather seek to know you in true relationship. Father, we don't mean any of this as an excuse to disobey your word. But Lord, we need your help. Give us hearts to love you. Give us faith to trust you. Give us courage to move past our past failures and struggles and shortcomings and rely more and more deeply on your mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray as we do that, I pray as we really do that deeply in our hearts that we would begin to treat each other by extending that same mercy and grace. That we would forgive others as we have been forgiven, just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. I pray that as a church we would rest deeply on the gospel. Jesus name.